At this time, if you're able, please stand for the scripture reading out of the respect for God's word. And scripture reading uh, this morning comes from Matthew 4, 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, He will command the angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, unless you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Again the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdom of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Then the devil left him, and behold, angels came and were ministering to him. This is God's word, it is true, and he's given out his love. You may be seated. I also have the pleasure of introducing one of our uh, guest preachers uh, for this summer. Um, one thing that we wanted to note is that our guest preachers are becoming from churches that we physically support um, through that ministry giving, so that 15% um, of your tithing, 15% of that goes to outreaches for our church, and so Steve and Becca, his wife, um, here, they're one of the churches that we support, they're at Waypoint, uh, which is at Powers right here, so very, very, very close to us. Um, so uh, Steve Stan from Waypoint Church, which is one of our Acts 9 churches that we support, he and his wife Becca have two children, Lily and Joel. Steve loves spending time outside in Colorado's mountains with his family, especially around Lake George, Colorado. His hobbies include gardening in the summer and everyone from everything fermentation in the winter, from making kombucha to fermenting his own hot sauces, sounds interesting, uh, to mixing up a batch of mead and to baking homemade sourdough bread. So let's welcome Steve. I guess all that info's on our website. I don't know where David got all that. <laughs> Somebody wanted me to sound very personable and friendly and have lots of hobbies uh, thanks for letting me be here. Uh, hello again to some of you. I've been here before. Colbert let me preach a couple times as I was uh, getting ready to launch our church um, just less than a year ago, last August. So we're still around, um, which is exciting. So yeah, <laughs> thanks. Thanks for your guys' support. We so appreciate it. And uh, I'm excited to bring God's word to you this morning. So let me pray. Lord, thank you so much for your word that you have uh, preserved it for thousands of years for us to hear today, uh, that you've given us the Holy Spirit to understand it, and I pray that your truths would be heard this morning, and that you would uh, open hearts and open minds to be changed by your grace. We pray in Christ's name, amen. Well, maybe it's just me that feels this way, but it feels like every other movie that's coming out is a Marvel movie uh, lately, and uh, <laughs> they do well. They make money is why they keep coming out. And so the, uh, the latest Spider-Man one that came out is, is like the top three box office earner of all time. And uh, Spider-Man's an interesting character. If you really think about him, he's unique in that he's one of the few superheroes that's a human. Uh, even Superman isn't really a man, right? He's this alien from the planet Krypton. Wonder Woman was created by Zeus. Aquaman is the descendant from this mythical city of Atlantis. Thor's a god under Odin from Asgard. But Spider-Man, he's, he's just a human. 
Now, granted, he was bitten by a radioactive spider, and it's given him a whole bunch of uh, these strengths. But they're kind of understated powers, if you think about it. He can shoot webs. He's got really quick reflexes. Uh, He has sticky hands, (laughs) so he can climb buildings. Um, He has a really good intuition, basically, called Spidey Sense. Uh, so his superpowers, he's, he's like a slightly better human, you know, if you think about it. And if you look on his superhero, like his superhero Wikipedia page, which they have their own Wikipedia website for superheroes, listed as one of his weaknesses is his humanity. They say it's a weakness. He's human. He can't do it all. He gets stressed. He gets tired. He gets emotional. And so all the movies have him going in and out of these periods where he has to take a break from being a superhero. When he loses his Aunt May, he can't be Spider-Man anymore. When he breaks up with Mary Jane, he's, he's got to stop being Spider-Man again. He, he can't do it all the time. He has limits. He can't do it all because he's human. He has limitations because he's human. And that's true for all of us too. And maybe you need to hear that this morning, that we can't do it all because we're human. We have limitations because we're human. And that's what we see on, the, on, on display in this text, in Jesus' temptation. We know that Jesus came down to earth. He put on the limitations of humanity. He became fully man while he retained being fully God. And he's coming face to face with these limitations that he has as a human. And he's showing us, he's demonstrating to us how to properly live with these limitations. He's being tested and he's being tempted because of his limitations. And so we see Jesus face three different temptations in the desert. First, he's tempted to think he can in his own strength solve all of his own problems. Second, he's tempted to not trust in God's plan. And third, the devil attempts to trick him with the idea that he can have it all. But we see Jesus won't bite on any of these temptations. He knows God is good. He knows that we need God to meet our deepest desires and needs. Uh, He knows we need God to direct our paths. And he knows these limitations that God has given humanity are good and necessary for us to be with him and rely on him. And so one thing I want us to understand as we start to look at these temptations is these are very symbolic. Everything about this is very symbolic. Even the number of days that Jesus is in the desert, right? He's in there for 40 days. Uh, Just like Noah was uh, for 40 days and 40 nights in this raining storm. Just like Moses and Israel when they go out into the desert and are tested by God for 40 years. And Jesus is there to face this trial, this temptation to see if he will sin. It's very similar to what we see in the garden where Adam and Eve are tempted to see if they will sin. But we'll see that Jesus isn't, doesn't fall into temptation like Adam and Eve. So what, what we're seeing here is something very symbolic. Three different ways that humanity is tested. Three different ways that Jesus passed the test, Adam failed. Three, three ways that all of us, all of mankind... We'll be tempted in this world to sin. We'll be struggling with our humanity and our limitations. And so here we are. Jesus goes into this desert. He's, he's doing this symbolic test as a representative of all of mankind, of humanity. And for 40 days, he doesn't eat or drink anything. And then the Bible makes the biggest understatement of all time and says he was hungry. <laughs> yeah, I bet he was hungry. <laughs> he didn't eat for 40 days. He was weak. He was tired. He was vulnerable. It's times like this when we're most prone to to those desires, those temptations, those those trials, isn't it? And so in this first temptation, he goes right for Jesus' biggest need at the moment, food. He's hungry, and so the devil says to him, okay, just turn this rock into food. And then the devil is, is attacking something about his humanity, right? This neediness 
as humans. We're always needing our, 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 our hunger needs to be met, our thirst needs to be met, and he's using it to try and get Jesus to doubt God. He's saying, you know, you have this appetite, you're yearning to be full, just take the matter into your own hands. Just solve the problem on your own. And Jesus' answer is interesting. He says and answers the devil by saying, man does not live by bread alone, but on every word that comes from the Lord. Jesus is recognizing we don't just have these physical needs for bread. There are unseen spiritual needs as well. There's the word of the Lord that, is the, that, that we need to know how to survive. There are needs that God meets spiritually that we don't even quite fully understand. There's more than just physical needs. We're limited in the ways we can fulfill those needs. Uh, when I was a kid, I really loved Swiss cake rolls. They're, they're just the perfect combo. You got the chocolate outer shell chocolate cake, vanilla icing, and I had this great memory. We would go to this babysitter after school between when then and my parents would get off work, and the first thing we would do, we'd all sit around the table, and she'd hand out little packets of Swiss cake rolls, and we'd open them up and eat it. And I remember thinking, this is just the best invention anyone has ever made. And then I, we'd go home, and I'd have to eat dinner at home, and we'd eat like beef stew or something, and I remember thinking, why don't we just eat Swiss cake rolls? <laughs> Why compromise for this beef stew stuff? Why eat eggs for breakfast when there's Swiss cake rolls? And my mom, like, I remember having this conversation. She sat me down and she was explaining, like, Steve, there's this, we need different kinds of food. We need vitamins and minerals and proteins and carbohydrates. Uh, You can't survive alone on Swiss cake rolls. Man does not live by Swiss cake rolls alone, but by meat and vegetables and bread, she told me. But it's a similar kind of thinking, right? We can think with this kind of simplicity of a kid that all we need is maybe a physical solution to our problems. All our needs, if we would strive hard enough, we we could achieve them. But man does not survive on these physical solutions alone. We are human with mind, body, and soul. We have limits. We can't provide to meet for all our needs. We need God. We have this need for deeper spiritual fulfillment that we cannot get without him. So when we begin to think we can solve all our problems and meet all our needs on our own, it's equivalent to like a young plumber who just finished plumbing school and goes to Niagara Falls and says, yeah, I could fix that. To look at the the world, to look at our problems and to think, yeah, I could fix that. It just ignores the complexity of our world. But the good news is we don't need to solve every problem. We don't need to be able to fix every problem. We have the word of God. We have relationship with God. We have dependence upon him. We need him, but we have him. God's given us limits, but he can provide what we need truly, physically, spiritually, emotionally. And Jesus knows this. He knows we are more than physical. We, we need to remain with God. It's, it's really the opposite of what the devil accuses him of. The devil is saying God's provision is weak, so you need to be strong. But Jesus is saying my provision is met in God in perfect ways I don't even fully understand. All right, so temptation number one doesn't work. So the devil amps up his game, and uh, he gets a little trickier. He's trying to pull a fast one on Jesus in the second one. Uh, So he notices in this first temptation, Jesus quotes the Bible to answer him. And so the devil basically says, okay, you like the Bible so much, let me quote the Bible. So he takes Jesus to the top of the the temple, the temple where all the Jews would have been worshiping God, middle of Jerusalem, uh, up, up high, and he says, throw yourself off of this temple. Because the Bible says, if you trust God, then his angels will care for you and prevent your death. What he's really saying here is interesting. He's saying, before all these Jews, basically prove your divinity. 
Throw yourself off the temple. God will rescue you. You can, you know, use your powers to finally prove to all these people who are persecuting you, who don't believe you're the Messiah, prove it to them. Show them that you are the Messiah. And Jesus, once again, is not fooled. He answers with his own scripture, and he says, no, you shall not put God to the test. What he's saying is, no, we don't tell God what to do. We don't say to God, you will do this. You will save me in this way. The devil wants Jesus to doubt God's direction and God's plan. He wanted Jesus to come up with a different plan to prove his divinity. God already had a plan in place. He was sending Jesus to the cross to be uh, crucified and three days later rise from the dead to prove his divinity. And the devil's basically getting them to tempt and and say, you need a better plan. That's going to take too long. Take charge of this situation. Forge your own path. Just right now, prove it to the Jewish people that you really are the Messiah. Make them see. And he tries to get us to do the same thing, where we ask questions, you know, does God really know what's best? I mean, we're pretty smart. Why don't we come up with our own plan, chart our own path forward, and and still be Christians and trust God will do it, but we've got a pretty good idea of where we need to go and what our plan is. We pray for him to uh, bless the path we've already decided on. We pray for him to give us the promotion or help us do that specific thing before we even ask. God, is this the plan that you have for me? Is this the direction that's best for my life? But you know, in reality, for when, we, when we start trying to pick our own plans, we don't remember and realize we're human. We have limits. We don't know what the future holds. I don't know what the results will be. To think I know the results and I know the best path is prideful on my part. Um, have you ever seen the movie Bruce Almighty? It was a long time ago, and it, it has like the dumbest plot uh, but basically God has to go on vacation, so Jim Carrey needs to take over. It's a pretty bad plot. <laughs> and, and one of the scenes, though, it's uh, showing something that's true in a sense. Millions of prayer requests are coming in to Jim Carrey. You can hear him. He turns them into emails. And he, he can't, no matter how fast he works, he cannot answer these millions and millions and millions of prayer requests. And so he just responds to all of them, Yes. And in the news the next day, uh, 500,000 people win the lottery. So they all have to split it and get like $3 each. But it's an interesting thought. Like what if like we just all got what we wanted, what we prayed for. Um, If everyone got exactly what they wanted. Because the reality is, how many stories have you heard where somebody's won the lottery and it actually ruined their life? All their relationships became about money and giving money and getting money and what they were going to do with the money and they go into hiding and I mean story after story or how many people do you know who were striving so hard to get that top promotion their their dream job they finally get it only to have become so obsessed with work and and that culture at work and uh, proving themselves that the job just utterly consumes them they lose their their family they they lose their health through this job or how many parents got their kids into the perfect school program the most competitive best program out there their prayer was answered only for their kids to need counseling later in life because of the pressures they felt in such a competitive environment the truth is we just do not know what the best path forward is we're limited we're humid and oftentimes picking the path we think is best can lead to destruction another movie uh, illustration but like i was thinking about aladdin and uh, he asks, he, like, he wants to fall in love with Jasmine. And so he's, he wants to ask the genie if he can make Jasmine fall in love with him. But the genie's like, I can't do that. I can't make somebody love you. So he says, okay, I'll 
become this rich prince. That'll convince her to love me. But if you remember in the movie, they already had this time of connection where Jasmine goes into the streets and meets the poor boy Aladdin and, and falling, beginning to fall in love with him for who he is. Uh, not that he's a rich prince. So it's almost like the genie knows when he's, when he's granting this request, he's, he's uh, setting him up for failure. And that's exactly what happens. Aladdin, when he's found out to be the, this liar of a prince, Jasmine gets mad at him. She's upset. She's like, you're not that boy I met, you know, out in the, the poor boy in the city. You, you've lied to try and trick me to fall in love with you. But the genie's hands were tied. He's, even though he knows this is a destructive, horrible wish to lie to get the girl, he's sort of forced to grant it to Aladdin. And, and Aladdin's best path forward uh, almost destroys what he really wanted. And I'm thankful God is not like that. God does not have to say yes to our prayer requests. He doesn't have to bless the path that we picked that might lead to our destruction. He says no sometimes. He has better plans for us. He's bigger than that. He's sovereign over our lives. He knows some of the solutions we even are praying for can hurt us. And Jesus is showing us that. He's saying we don't come up with the plan and and ask God to bless it. We trust God to give us the plan and the direction as well. That's what real trust is. That's what full trust is to really not only trust he will accomplish it, but that he will even uh, give us the path to follow, even to places we might not desire. But giving up something, giving up that direction because of our, our human, so when we give up even picking the direction, wouldn't that give us rest? If we're not forced to have to figure everything out, to, to be able to rely and know that God is sovereign even over our own decisions, it's like instead of trying to drive the car in the fog and not know what's ahead, we finally let God take over the steering wheel and we can rest in the car. To, to let him take the way forward, to let and trust him and be dependent on him for direction, to ask him, what do you want me to do, is actually something that brings us rest. And that's one of the points of, of all of these, is that as we learn to embrace our limitations, we actually learn to rest more deeply in God. And so Jesus doesn't put God to the test. He doesn't trust God to do exactly what he wants to do. Instead, Jesus waits for God's plan to unfold, the plan that will eventually take Jesus to the cross, to death. So the devil's first two attempts end in failure, they don't work, no surprise to us. Uh, but the devil was probably thinking maybe he could foil God's plans in these moments. So finally, for this third temptation, this last one, you would expect maybe he would pull out all the stops. He would leave the best temptation for last. He would spin his biggest trick to really fool Jesus into this last one. But really, it's actually the most blatant and bold one. He, he stops trying to trick Jesus. He just flat out offers him a bribe. That's how you could think of it. The, basic, the, the devil takes him to this mountain and he says, look, stop worshiping God, worship me and I'll give you exactly what you want. All these things around you, this all will be your kingdom. I will give you everything. It's just a bribe. Which if we're honest with ourselves, uh, that bribe can sound pretty good sometimes to be able to have it all. When we work so hard every day uh, to have it all but are constantly frustrated with our failures and our setbacks, where we want to achieve and do well at work. We want to be the best mom we can be and provide everything for our kids. We want to achieve all the goals we set for this year, but we're always coming up short. So to think, man, wouldn't it be nice to have the energy 
to do all that, to have the patience I need with my kids, to be able to afford the exact groceries and meals I want every night, to get the bigger house then we won't have the stress of this annoying thing about our home. It's tempting. I know intellectually we might be thinking, yes, I know those aren't the most important things in life, but when we wake up every day and we're striving to get those things, we should realize it is quite tempting to think somebody stood before us and offers, you could have all that. And it comes easy. But we have to look and see what Jesus says. He says, no, you shall worship the Lord your God. Again, he almost doesn't quite answer the devil's questions the way you would expect, but it's exactly the way that it's needed to be answered. Because we can't have it all if you give up worshiping God. We were made to worship God and be in connection with God. We were made to find the fullness of who we are when we're in communion with God, where our deepest needs can only be met in Him, in relationship with Him. And so if we gained everything, if we gained the whole world but lost the ability to worship and be with God, we will have lost it all. Jesus is illustrating this in His answer. He's showing us that even if we don't have the ability to buy everything we want at the grocery store, eat out as much as we want, or have the dream job, that if we have God, we already have it all. Uh, I don't know if you've ever read the poem. It's kind of like a poem in a kid's book uh, called The Giving Tree. My mom used to uh, read it to me when I was a kid, trying to awaken the inner poet in me. It didn't work. It it didn't exist in there. Um, But it's about this boy in a tree. The boy comes and swings on the branches of the tree, plays, you know, childlike play in the leaves, eats the apples, so he's content. He rests in the shade of the tree. He loves, it says in the poem, he loves the tree and the tree loves him. They find joy from one another. But then something happened. The boy, he begins to grow up, and so the book kind of charts him growing up through different stages. He, he now thinks it's, it's silly to just play in the tree. He wants to make something of himself, and so he needs money. He realizes he needs money to be able to do the things he wants. And so the tree says, take my apples. Take my apples then and sell my apples, and and you can have what you want. You can meet the deepest desires of your heart. So he does. He takes them, sells the apples, but he comes back later to the tree, and he's still unhappy. He's still sad, and he realizes it's it's not my needs. Maybe I need a, a wife and a kids and a house. That will bring me fulfillment and satisfaction. And so the tree says, cut, fine, cut down my branches. Use them to build a house for your family. And so the boy does this, but he's still sad. So he comes back later again, and he says, I've done the whole family thing. Now, maybe what I was missing was I needed to travel the world. That's what's going to bring me fulfillment. And so the tree says, take my trunk and use it to build a boat and travel the world. And so the boy does. He travels the world, but he comes back an old man, sad. Uh, As this boy grows older, he realizes all he wants is a place to rest and to find joy and to find shade. And the tree says, sit down on my stump, be with me again, and you can find your rest. And the point of the story is all along the boy had what he needed. The tree offered him rest and fun and food, but he wanted more He kept taking from the tree. He kept cutting from the tree to get what he wanted. And he ends up losing what he had. He ends up losing the tree by taking so much from it. Now, in one sense, I'm I'm thankful God is not like the tree, just like the genie who's not forced to give decisions. God is not forced to uh, give up himself until he's nothing so we can pursue these endless ends. He never gets destroyed by us taking from him. He's God. He doesn't give himself up. He remains this whole time 
a, a tree, a whole tree, that, a place of rest and joy, joy and provision for us. He's never diminished in that way. So while we can leave God and pursue our own desires like the boy does, God remains this full tree, this full place of joy and contentment for us. But in another sense, he does become like the tree, right? God does eventually give it all for us in Jesus Christ. When he goes to the cross, when he dies in our place, when he is cut up in our place, like the Old Testament talks about it. But he doesn't do it so we can pursue endless uh, things that we think will give us fulfillment, like money and a house and travels. He gives himself up so we can be reconnected with that tree, reconnected with God, so we could worship God, so we could find our joy and provision in God himself. So the devil is trying to trick him by saying, I can give you it all. But Jesus knows he has it all in God already. And so whenever we're tempted to to think we can have it all or that we want it all, we can respond and know that we have it all with God himself. So when we come face to face with those limits, when we realize we do have limitations as humans, we can embrace our limits and find rest in God. Now, I just want to give a few examples of what this could look like. So when you run out of energy for your kids or run out of patience for your kids, I'm just guessing what this looks like. I have no idea with a five-year-old and a six-year-old. But when you run out of patience for your kids, when you're unable to be the perfect spouse or perfect parents, you remember your limits. You remember God cares even more deeply about your spouse and your children than you do. And you remember he will be there to care for them. And so you can find rest in your limits. Or if you're striving to find 20 close friends because you really want that type of full community and you end up with 20 loose acquaintances, instead we can embrace our limits, be realistic about our time, find those two or three people that we can be close friends with. When we embrace our time limits... We can find real rest in having a close-knit community. Maybe even striving for church things. You know it's important to share your faith, but the idea of hosting 10 parties with unbelievers in your neighborhood is overwhelming. Okay, embrace your limits. You don't need to get to know your entire neighborhood. Find the one friend across the street whom you've connected with where it comes naturally for you to talk about the things you care about, like your faith. And then you can begin to find joy in sharing your faith when you embrace your limits. Um, My wife and I, we care a lot about the environment, so we try and recycle. She's really good about buying products that create less waste. But when we don't have the money to buy the non-plastic option, or when we don't have the energy to sort out all the items into the proper recycling stream, I don't feel guilt about it. I remember I have limits. That God is sovereign over his creation. That God is caring for his creation as well. And so I remember and find rest in my limits and in his sovereignty. See, when you begin to think you can have it all, when you start to trick yourself and think I can do it all, eventually we become face-to-face with our failures. And what happens then is what I like to think of as like the spiral, the shame spiral, where you start to think, you know, if I'm not at home all the time with my kids, if I'm not achieving at work, if I'm not well-rounded, working out, cooking homemade meals and staying healthy, then there's something wrong with me. But there's nothing wrong with you if you have limits. It means you're human. It means you were designed to be connected to God. Limits are good. They mean we can say no. It means we don't have to have the best dinner parties. We don't have to be the best gift giver. We don't have to be the perfect daughter who calls her parents every week. When God created the world, 
He separated the land from the water. He separated the sky from the seas. He created and made limits to his creation. He gave us limits that were meant for our good. And from the beginning, creation has been trying to shake off those limits. Adam and Eve didn't want to be limited by what tree they were allowed to eat of. And so they threw off God's limitations. They threw off his guardrails and they ended up in the ditch. But Jesus is different here. Jesus, right here in this text, he faces the temptation that he could have it all, that he can take his own path, that he can get rid of God's limits, but he doesn't fail. He doesn't fall into the temptation. He passes the test. He trusts God. He worships God. And in his obedience, he shows us that only God can give us the provision we need. Only God can know the best plan for our lives. And our limitations are given to us by God and are good and right. They make us dependent on him. Where we can have all our needs met in him. We can't fulfill them, but we get to rest in the fact that he fulfills them. We don't know what path is best, but we get to rest in the fact that he knows what's best and what direction to take. We can't have it all, but we have something better. We have God himself. Our limits are perfectly met in God. You see, if we start to think our limits are bad, that when we see our limits, it's failure, we'll run from God. Because we don't want to go to him until we get ourselves cleaned up and together. But when we realize our limits were meant to drive us to him, then when we see our weaknesses and our failures, we run to him. We become dependent on him. We embrace him when we embrace our limits. We embrace our dependence on him when we see our weakness. The one who became the cut-up stump, the one who was nailed to the cross, the one who was raised from the dead so that we could be reunited with God, the one who was meant for us to be perfectly finding our limits in him, the one who showed his love for us on the cross, he calls us to that, to use his model of facing temptations by reliance on God. He's the one who calls us to this. So I would just encourage you today to respond to that, to recognize our limits and to run to God, follow Jesus' example in that, to remember he became cut up for us so that we could have it all as we're reunited with God. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you so much for the ways that you have, again, given us the scriptures, that you took Jesus through this to teach us something and show us something. And so I pray we would be able to not only see it and understand it, but feel it in our hearts. So as we reflect on on your word, as we um, talk together and as we leave this place, uh, that you would motivate us to see your love and be changed by your love, even now in this moment. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, we're going to do table discussions. So if, you're, if you've been here forever, you know what we're doing. If you're new, uh, that's why the tables are set up this way, to provide an opportunity to discuss the sermon here. And I get to remember the questions I sent to David. Uh, you'll get a chance to kind of work through these uh, four questions here to just give you a time to, to process and uh, reflect on this sermon. So, I don't know how you start it. Begin. (laughs) Thank you, Steve, for those uh, words with the sermon. Um, Something that struck me with that sermon particularly is the line that Jesus was hungry. We get to see Jesus' humanity when he does take himself out into the desert to retreat from society, to be with God. 
and we see the devil attack him when he is at his weakest state. But we also see in Jesus' humanity that he is abiding with God's word. Every time the devil comes at Jesus, he rebukes the devil with God's word. So we want to think in our own lives, when we are being harassed by sin and temptation, are we abiding in Jesus' words? Are we resting in what Jesus has done for us? Are we willing to present ourselves unclean, dirty, and spoiled, and be willing to look at Jesus and him look upon us and say, well done, my good and faithful servant. I love you. You are a child of mine. I accept you because my son went to the cross for you, so you do not have to experience that. So we're going to transition now into a time of worship, another style of worship along with singing. There'll be a couple songs, and we can go to the communion tables that are around here. Um, I encourage you, if this is your first time coming um, and um, you have not put your faith in Christ Jesus, that this is a great time to do it. My wife and I will be over underneath the basketball hoop, and we would love to pray with you and talk with you um, through that. Um, And if you're not sure about putting um, your life in Jesus Christ's hands, and this is kind of a first experience, then I encourage you that um, communion is not for you. Um, It's not going to resemble and work the way that it is supposed to for you. It's a self-defeating purpose in that. But um, we want to encourage you that if this is your first time to come to the table, um, because Jesus' body was broken for you, and his blood was shed for you. So we can be encouraged by that fact um, that he has already finished what we wish we could finish. So um, let us worship Jesus in that way. Amen.